Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to our three-part series uh, where we're discussing uh, the criminal implications of OSHA or OSHA Act violations. I'm Frank Davis from the Dallas Ogletree office, and I'm here with my law partner, John Surma, from our Ogletree Houston office. For the last two podcasts, we've been talking about the accident that occurred out at the Rust Jet in New Mexico. We did a, uh, a pretty thorough job of covering the elements that lead to an individual being referred for criminal charges under the OSH Act. And there were essentially three ways to go to jail for OSH Act violations. One is on the federal track. If the uh, employer uh, willfully violates a specific OSHAC standard and it leads to a, a fatality uh, in a related workplace accident, that's number one. Number two, if an individual is uh, makes material misrepresentations to OSHA, also known as lying to OSHA, that's a reason for imprisonment. And then finally, in the case of a workplace fatality, a referral can be made under state criminal law uh, and an individual can be prosecuted and if convicted can be sentenced to a prison term under state law. The The Rust case that we've been discussing in Santa Fe, New Mexico was the third of these exposures uh, and we just had uh, criminal charges brought by the state of New Mexico uh, this week. And so uh, with that, John, do you want to give us a a 30,000-foot overview from whence we've come over the last couple of podcasts? Yes, Frank. Thanks for the introduction. I do think it it bears kind of setting the table for the audience in this discussion. So, you know, let's start off with the fact that Alec Baldwin was a high-level manager and employee working on the project. This, after the incident kind of came into dispute and there was some question over whether or not he could or could not influence the project or the work from a managerial perspective. The film's own documentation indicated that it would follow industry standards uh, relative to safety. Uh, There had been purportedly uh, safety issues on the set related and unrelated to firearms handling and firearms prior to the discharge of the firearm that killed the director of photography. There were issues relative to weapons handling and or ammunition handling prior to this incident. The person who had responsibility for handling the firearms also had other prop responsibilities. Uh, When interviewed by OSHA, said that she had been chided for not spending enough time working on props And her response to that was that they were working on guns on the set every day. And those were ultimately a priority because that's where dangerous mistakes would actually happen. Complained that she did not have enough time to work with Alec Baldwin on gun handling techniques, but was told that 
you know, because the contract allowed for eight days, that was all she was going to be able to, to, to do. Uh, purportedly, there were a couple of accidental discharges prior to the date that were not investigated by management and no implementation of any sort of corrective measure was taken. There was a safety coordinator who, according to media reports, failed to take action in response to safety incidents. Then it gets even dicier that on the day of the incident in question, there was a stunt double that had two discharges of blanks using a prop gun that, according to news reports, should never have happened. On the day of the shooting, an employee reportedly uh, texted a manager and said that we've had three accidental discharges. This is super unsafe. Safety issues led to employees and contractors walking off the set, and it's unclear that any new protocols were ever put in place. Nobody reported any of these safety issues, whether it was management or employees or others, to New Mexico OSHA. Industry gun safety protocols allegedly were not followed. And after the shooting, the production company stated it was going to implement new safety measures, but at that point, the damage was too late. Too late, uh, and and you know this young lady had already passed. I think that you know both from the criminal perspective, as well as just kind of an OSHA case study, I think allow us to paint a really interesting picture. Yeah, I think so too. You know, there's not a specific OSHA standard that deals with this specific situation. Uh, and so we know that New Mexico had to issue this as a general duty clause violation, um, sometimes referred to as a 5A1 under the OSH Act, Section 5A1. Uh, so when I look at it, I see that they're having to discuss industry standards in order to establish that 5A1. What's, what's the background on that, John? Well, I mean, the OSH Act was created at a time where there were no standards at all. And so, you know, the expectation that any agency was ever going to be able to issue rulemaking that would cover the millions and millions of workplaces and the myriad combinations of health and safety issues in the workplace was probably difficult, if not impossible, to fathom. And so when the act was crafted, 5A1 was essentially established to allow OSHA, in the absence of a particularized standard, to cite an employer for violating what the employer's industry or an industry that related to the incident in question uh, required of that industry. So as a for instance, in this case, there is no OSHA standard relative to the handling of firearms at all, whether on a movie set or elsewhere. And so OSHA, rather than having to have a written rule, is allowed to look at what the rest of the industry does as best practices relating to safety and basically create that as the basement level expectation for an employer in that space. So right. it, and. And, and that's what they did here, right? Because in order to be prosecuted either uh, under the civil statute that is the OSH Act or under criminal statute, the person being prosecuted has to have notice that their conduct could be a, vi- could be a violation of a law uh, or, or some other standard, right? Yeah. I mean, definitely with respect to the OSH Act, that's the case. I mean, given that the criminal violation here is one that one would 
characterize as a negligence-based. It wouldn't necessarily require that you have industry knowledge, but it's the quote-unquote reasonable person standard, which is functionally, you know, you, I, and every one of the people of the audience, you know, are considered to have an expectation that they live up to the quote-unquote reasonable person standard. So when we were talking last time, I was I was really harping on uh, on my belief that it had to be a willful citation under the OSH Act, whether it be a specific standard or a general duty clause citation. But you took the position that that wasn't necessarily true. And maybe this lays the foundation for that. Is, is that what you're talking about? Because the state criminal charge is a negligence-based charge? Yeah, that's correct. And, 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 you know, the thing about it is, is because this is arising under New Mexico criminal law, as opposed to New Mexico's version of the OSH Act and the promulgated standards, you know, the, the, the burden of proof, what the state has to show is different and what the expectation is relative to conduct is different. And so the industry standard isn't what's going to drive this prosecution, it's it, this prosecution is going to be driven by the reasonable person standard. So, before we move from here and talk about some of the other contingent uh, exposures that an employer has in a situation like this, what what's the takeaway? Uh, how how could someone in a similar situation uh, avoid exposure to a willful citation or a serious citation uh, compounded by uh, a criminal referral? Let's just take the points that we talked about at the outset. So one of the things that was happening was, let me actually take a step back. This is all what's been reported in the media. You know, whether all of this is truthful and accurate, I personally would not say that any of it is necessarily truthful or accurate. I just don't know. I didn't participate in the investigation myself. I'm not saying no. what should Alec Baldwin done. I'm trying to move beyond that because right. we wanted to be a more general lesson here uh, about and I shouldn't say what you should do, but what what can what what options could an employer consider, or what should an employer be thinking about if they're in a similar situation, meaning that their employees are exposed to hazards that could result in serious bodily injury or death. And I'm going to take this maybe just a little bit different than where you're going with your question. So the alleged facts that we spoke about early on, let's kind of walk through those. So. You know, purportedly, we have some safety issues crop up prior to the fatal incident. Purportedly, folks are reporting this to management. Purportedly, folks are walking off the job because of safety issues. That's all the evidence. That, that's all the type of thing that OSHA is going to look at from the standpoint of establishing employer knowledge. You know, you've got uh, devices that are going to have the text messages that were purportedly sent that indicate that somebody's making a complaint. You've got, you know, folks that are, um, you know, disputing that they've been given enough time in a contract. And so all that stuff's going to be used to establish employer knowledge. Let me interrupt you there, John. So what do you do when you get, what, what, what should an employer consider doing when they get that kind of feedback that there's hazards on their work site. What steps should an employer consider or could an employer consider in order to to break the chain of events that that leads OSHA to conclude that there's there's been a, a poor handling of a of a workplace hazard? 
Well, and, and I'm sure you've seen this in your practice, Frank. I mean, first of all, you investigate and find out whether or not the complaint is valid or legitimate. I have employers contact me all the time that once you ask them to, you know, can you get some more detail, they start drilling in and, you know, they ultimately determine that, you know, maybe it was just somebody who was unhappy about circumstances that they... And then once they've identified the hazard, assuming that it is a valid hazard, then there's an expectation that they take steps to correct them. And then is there a monitoring process following the correction? Well, I would say there's two steps there. One is to document that you took the corrective actions because sometimes when memories get a little bit distant, you know, we, we forget exactly what happened. But then secondly, you know, most circumstances where hazards exist are either a process is failing, a piece of equipment or, or machinery is failing, or there's some sort of, you know, failure in the conduct of the uh, for folks that are doing the work and you know, they just, you know, they, they get sloppy about using the right PPE or whatever the case might be. And so you do have an obligation to you know, make sure that whatever corrective measures are put in place uh, are, are things that continue on and are not just, you know, I, I plug the hole in the dike and so I can walk away and assume that the dike is in perfectly good condition is never going to leak again. The old phrase, the mantra that Many people have frequently heard me say, uh, you've got to inspect, detect, correct, and as you just pointed out, document. There's multiple ways you can do it. It doesn't have to be a, a, a written disciplinary document, right? It could be it could be an email to the HR department saying, I spoke to this employee about wearing a seatbelt on a forklift. He promised he'll always do it. I spoke to this employee about wearing safety goggles over her eyes instead of on her forehead, as we've seen many people do inadvertently. And that can just be an email documenting that you've you've made those corrections. It doesn't have to be uh, sitting down in your office and writing a five-page memo about a simple safety correction, especially for a first offense. And on the same note, I've always said that it's great for employee relations if you're going out and catching people doing things right. Because candidly, I'd rather be caught doing something right and told I'm doing something right. I don't remember it as long as whenever people tell me I'm doing something wrong, but it feels good and you know until the next work day. Yeah, and I mean, we all carry cameras and video recorders in our pockets in the form of an iPhone or an Android device. And so kind of a corollary to that is, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of taking a, a simple picture of something. So, John, let's skip uh, over to another OSHA doctrine just briefly. We'll talk about yeah. this more in a future podcast. But what what is the multi-employer citation policy? So just speaking in very broad terms, multi-employer citation policy is a policy that allows OSHA to issue citations to employers who fall into one of four categories. So you're the controlling employer, meaning you control the work and control the workplace to being the creating employer. So you're the employer that created the, the workplace hazard. Three is you're the exposing employer. So you neither control the employees, nor did you create the exposure, but you had folks working in and around the hazardous condition. And the last is, and, and I've seen it, done different or termed differently, either the correcting or the abating, um, but, but you're the employer who um, undertook to rectify or eliminate whatever the hazard was. 
So the two places I typically see citations are under the exposing employer, where an employer is accused of exposing their own employees to a hazard, and the controlling employer, where, for instance, it'd be a general contractor in charge of a subcontractor that's supposed to tell that subcontractor uh, to follow certain safety rules and then monitor to make sure they're following those safety rules. I want to focus this discussion about criminal liability on the controlling employer. Are you aware of any cases where the controlling employers ever received a criminal referral for a fatality associated with a, a workplace incident? The controlling employer is established two ways. Um, one is what the contracts say, and the other is what the actual on-the-ground work that's being done shows actually happened, because those two concepts don't necessarily align in real life. And, and there have been, I, I mean, there's not a ton of criminal referrals that have been issued under the MECP, but but there have been criminal referrals that have been issued, particularly on work sites where employers have a high level of control over the work site and, and get pretty granular in that level of control. Yeah, so this has always been kind of a slippery slope, right? The Department of Labor uh, has long been trying to find joint employer status to try to reach out to more employers. One way that OSHA has done it is through this multi-employer citation policy. Working uh, on a different track because the National Labor uh, Relations Board isn't under under the same heading as OSHA, but the National Labor Relations Board recently uh, decided a case in December that said if an employer uh, just offers a little bit of input into working conditions or has the authority to alter a working condition, they could be considered a joint employer for a subcontractor for doing nothing more than having that authority to exert some control over the employees, whether it's exercised or not. It hadn't quite gotten that far in terms of joint employer status, but that's uh, the controlling employer or part of the controlling employer analysis, as I understand it. It is, but you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm working on a case right now where the alleged controlling employer, my client, and their level of control is infinitesimally small. You know, whereas if we look at like the Rust situation, you know, you've got a production company and a management company that was formed for purposes of operating or developing this film and for doing all this coordinating activities. And so as a, for instance, with respect to the OSHA citations that were issued, it would have been easy to issue OSHA citations to multiple levels of or, or multiple different entities that were present because, you know, the, the production company and the management of the production company is one entity that has control. You've got the firearms company, and then you've got some intermediate steps, including, you know, the safety contractor. And in the case that I'm working on right now, it's basically that safety contractor that they're trying to use the controlling employer doctrine on to bring them into that scenario to cite them. And, um, you know, quite frankly, it's much like you just described with that NLRB decision. The amount of touch they actually have in this scenario is very, very small. And, and But OSHA's trying to exploit that touch that, you know, is really more of a consultancy type thing. But because it was consultancy on the exact issue in question, uh, they're looking at us as, as the controlling employer. 
and here's the catch for OSHA, right? Uh, for New Mexico, OSHA anyway, is that the uh, citation they issued was a general duty clause violation, and uh, they can't issue um, a multi-employer citation using a, a general duty clause violation. They've got to have a, a specific standard because the general duty clause only applies to an employer's obligations to its own employees. It, it's not a general workplace expectation like a like a specific uh, standard. The standard is written for the workplace. The the general duty clause is written to impose a duty on an exposing employer, not not on on the others. And that's where uh, OSHA would most benefit from adopting some of the same posture, I guess, with regard to joint employers that uh, the Labor Board appears to have adopted in December. Far be it from me to suggest that anybody kind of deviates when they're going down the road between the white and yellow lines on the side of the road and the center of the road. You know, it's a policy and it doesn't have the full force of law. And in many, many inspections I have, you know, I see OSHA trying and, and it's ramping up. They're trying more and more to issue citations under the MECP. For now, John, thanks for meeting with me this morning. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a busy schedule today. I look forward to our next opportunity to sit down for another fireside chat here. Hey, Frank, as always, it's a pleasure chatting with you, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.